So we're in the middle of our series on the church, and uh, whenever I talk about the church, a story that comes to mind about a congregation, actually, that in an effort to stay current with the times, decided to have four worship services every Sunday. And they had established one for those new to the faith, another for those who preferred more traditional style of worship, Another one for those who had all but lost their faith in the process now of coming back. And another for those who had had bad experiences with toxic churches and were still nursing deep wounds about it. And they had names for each one of those services. They were called Finders, Keepers, Losers, Weepers. Some years ago now, Newsweek magazine reported that among upwardly mobile baby boomers, which is people of my age group, reported that, that they, there was a movement back to church, back to religion. Baby boomers, like myself, were returning to church. However, in a typically boomer style, they were shopping for churches in much the same way that they shopped for restaurants. And uh, so, A Satirical Guide to Churches is the title of an article that I clipped from a local newspaper during that time, actually, in which the author demonstrated what I consider to be a monumental understanding of the way that many people my age were evaluating and choosing churches that they would attend. He said in the article, only the trendy, best-appearing, politically correct, and tasteful churches would do. But he continued, the church shopping chore is pretty formidable, often requiring many visits to ascertain the best church in which to be seen. Notice that. Using the suggestion of a pastor friend, the author offered a better way. He said perhaps newspapers should begin publishing reviews of churches similar to reviews of restaurants, movies, and other popular pastimes. Great idea, right? In fact, the author suggested a scoring system. On his Sunday morning visits to area churches, he would rate the following. He says in this article, he says, um, some sort of scoring system is needed on our Sunday morning visits to area churches. Um, We'll rate the following. Parking capacity, outside appearance, inside appearance, comfort of pews, or chairs, music divided into categories of youth choir, adult choir, and organist, minister's appearance, sermons, quality and length, church school, nursery, outside missions, budget, and the congregation. Once all the items are rated and scored, one to five stars will be awarded based on the total score, one star representing churches to be avoided at all costs, and five stars indicating even the most cynical might find something pleasing there. And then he goes on tongue-in-cheek to talk about a visit that he made and how he raided the church in northern New England. Okay? I'll skip that part. (laughs) It's just too long, that's all. The fact that, that that... That article in the rating of churches, this tongue-in-cheek article, was written in 1993. 1993. 
But that's not far off. Interestingly, that it was written tongue-in-cheek, but that's exactly what is happening today. How many years later? It has now become standard contemporary practice. Go to any church website or any church Facebook page, including ours, and you will find a section publishing reviews and like ratings from people who have visited the church from one to five stars. It's sad, isn't it? That when I first clipped that article in 1993, it was a big joke. And now it's common practice. And we accept it. Is that really a true evaluation of how great a church is? And it also begs the following questions posed by authors Tom and Joni Schultz in their book, Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore. Now we're not talking about my age group. Now we're talking about the new millennials. Why are researchers predicting that by 2020, more than 85% of Americans won't worship God at church? If 88% of adults say that their faith is important to them, why do the majority of them choose not to grow their faith in a church? Why are nearly two-thirds, 64%, open to pursuing their faith in an environment that's different from the typical church? And why is it that last weekend, most people in America avoided church and a sizable portion who did make it to church wished they were somewhere else? These are the findings of today. Pascal once said, truly, it is an evil to be full of faults, but it is still a greater evil to be full of them and be unwilling to recognize them. Now, to be sure, we recoil at the idea of a church being identified in terms of a three-star or a five-star or a one-star ministry. Some of us may be repulsed at the thought of applying such a rating system to church evaluation. However, it may serve us well to remember that Jesus himself was not opposed to the process of church assessment. However, having said that, I'm also reminded that, strictly speaking, in evaluating spiritual health of our church or any church for that matter, the primary issue, as I have said previously in this series, is not what people think, it's what Christ knows. So the ratings are on a far different scale when we look at how Jesus evaluates a church. The health of the church is ultimately determined by the head of the church. I'm going to keep saying that all throughout this series. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 again as we continue. And as we have seen, Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord and head of the church, personally evaluated and rated seven first century churches as to their spiritual health. Again, I'm convinced that these messages are some of the most relevant and beneficial words of spiritual wisdom that the church has at its disposal today. I cannot repeat it enough. If any church is to be applauded in the eyes of Christ, then it has to be listening with an attentive ear to what he is saying. That's what these chapters here, chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, reiterate over and over again. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So what has he said to us so far? Last time we learned from the first church at Ephesus that a church that is great in heaven's eyes maintains its first love. Remember, we went through that, right? It's in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. I'm not going to read those verses to you this morning because that's what we dealt with last week. But as a means of review, in the midst of their work for the faith, they walked away from their focus, the church at Ephesus. They left their first love, and that's a danger to which every Christian and every church faces while in the midst of ministry. What characterizes first love? What are the things that are required in order for us to be rightly related to Christ and His church? Well, last time I gave you what I considered to be kind of the bottom line, critical elements of first love. Number one, it was an intense enthusiasm for everything about Jesus. Number two, it was a longing to be near Jesus. And number three, it was a great burning desire to serve Jesus. Okay? Those are just basic first love. Are those things present in your current, currently in your life was the question. Are they present in your heart? Are they present in your mind? If not, then Jesus' counsel in verse 5 was very succinct. He said, first, remember from where you have fallen. In other words, take a trip down memory lane, folks. Replay the wedding video. Right? Look at the photo albums. Take yourself back to the time when your love for me was pared down to its raw, original, and sincerest form. That's what Jesus is reiterating here. And he says, and then go beyond remembering. But the second one is what? Repent. Repent. Get off the highway that you're on, he said, the road you're on, and turn around and go in the other direction. You may think you're making great time, but guess what? You're going in the wrong direction. And then thirdly, he says, restore. Restore the way you, you were and the things you did at the first, or else, and here's the, here's the kicker, or else what? I will remove your light. I'll remove it. I'll fire the choir. I'll shut the doors because what you're doing right now is getting dangerously close to not being what church is. That's what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. And did you know, by the way, that there is no Christian witness, nor is there a city in the area of ancient Ephesus? They didn't take Jesus' counsel. It seems that heaven's eventual assessment about the church at Ephesus was, this is not church. And here's the sad truth, according to Jesus, that when your love goes cold, your lamp goes out. But on the flip side, as author Bob Sorge observes, the greatest dimensions of kingdom power will be touched by those who are truly ignited and energized by their personal love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And that is a personal matter. We're saved one by one, and we must be restored one by one. That's how I left it last time. Isaiah chapter 55 Verses 6 and 7 says this, Turn to the Lord and pray to Him now that He is near. Let the wicked leave their way of life and change their way of thinking. Let them turn to the Lord our God, for He is merciful and quick 
to forgive. That's a great message right there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. The last verse on this, on Jesus' address, address to the church at Ephesus, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A great church overcomes then, first of all, by maintaining its love for Christ. Secondly, we're going to move on now today to the church at Smyrna. And here's what Jesus says to that church right off the bat. He says that a church that is great in heaven's eyes suffers well. Suffers well. Look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. A church that is great in heaven's eyes is a church, Jesus says, that suffers well. Now, what do I mean by that? You might be asking that question. It means that a healthy church remains strong and committed to Christ even under the stress of severe testing. It weathers the storm. The storms, no matter what they are. It overcomes fear, Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 10, now we're going to look at a few scriptures, so let your fingers do the walking. That's an old ad. Matthew chapter 10, follow along with me, verses 16 to 20. Jesus says, Behold, to his disciples, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves to be shrewd as serpents, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to speak, to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Turn to... John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you underline anything in your Bibles, you should underline that verse. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. That's an important verse right there. Verse, uh, chapter 16 now, verse 1. 
These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because why? They have not known the Father or me. He says it again. Now look at verse 33, an encouraging verse in the midst of all of this storm. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. What's he say? I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, very simply put, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, say it, will be persecuted. Can't get around that, can you? First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, inasmuch then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Back to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, write these things down. The name of this city is very intriguing once said to be the most beautiful city in Asia, Smyrna is also translated in the Greek language as the word myrrh. Sound familiar? Except when it's used as a proper name for the city, it is used only three times in the entire New Testament. The first place it's used is at Christ's birth. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, myrrh was what? It was a gift of the Magi, right? I once read of a young boy who playing the part of one of the Magi in a Christmas pageant claimed he brought gifts of gold, common sense, and fur. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about here. Myrrh was a gift at Christ's birth. The second place we find it is at Christ's crucifixion. Mark chapter 15, verse 23 says that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh. Why? It was a sedative, and it could dull the pain, but Jesus refused it. And the third place that we read about myrrh being used was at Christ's burial. John chapter 19, verse 39, it was part of the spices and the fragrant spices that, were, that they would use over the dead bodies as they prepared them for burial. See, myrrh seems to be associated with suffering in its scriptural usage. It's interesting that the city of Smyrna had a very profitable trade in myrrh. It was an important commodity to that community. Myrrh was derived from a kind of balsam or herb tree. The substance was often used in ritualistic holy ointment and perfume. Why? Because of its very fragrant qualities. One commentator describes, myrrh provides a beautiful picture of suffering. When Christ came into the world as a little baby, he came to suffer. When he died on the cross, he was suffering. To show the end of his suffering, he was embalmed with myrrh. 
But there's something even more intriguing about myrrh that is notable. Myrrh has to be crushed before it gives off any fragrance. The more it is crushed, the sweeter it smells. And that's what I believe Christ was highlighting through the church at Smyrna here in Revelation 2. This was a church surrounded in the city by pagan temples and emperor worship. A dangerous place to be a follower of Christ. During the course of a year, people would be pressed into declaring that Caesar is Lord, and if the Christians denied to do that, they could be killed and martyred for their faith. In fact, many of them were. The real danger then was not necessarily, though, from the Romans here in this city, but from a large population of Jews who detested Christians as heretics to the faith and joined in with the Romans in persecuting them. Those Jews were every bit as much Satan followers as those who worshipped idols, according to Jesus here in verse 9. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, but they are not. And what has he called them? A synagogue of Satan. That's pretty hefty, coming from the words of Jesus. Jesus says to this church, do not fear suffering. Don't fear suffering. Be faithful. I will fulfill you. You will become a fragrant aroma to the world around you and you will end up pointing people to me. That's what he says to this church. Even though this suffering church appeared to be poor, many of the believers there were probably slaves and destitute. Christ assured them that they were instead truly rich. Do you see that there in verse 9? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You're rich. They had everything that really mattered spiritually, Jesus said. Just the exact opposite at the church of the church at Laodicea, which we will see at the end of this series, who thought they were rich because they were wealthy and they didn't need anything, yet Jesus pronounced them in Revelation 3, verse 17, wretched miserable, and poor. He called their attention to the fact that he himself here in, in, to the church at Smyrna had died and was come to life and that he was intimately acquainted with their tribulation, with their poverty, and with the blasphemy that was being perpetrated against them. See how Jesus says that? The first and the last in verse 8, who was dead and has come to life says this, I know, I am intimately acquainted with your tribulation and your poverty and the blasphemy that is perpetrated against you. He knew their pain. He experienced their suffering, even to the point of death on a cross. And he came out the other side of that with the fragrant aroma of eternal life, amen? And that is the promise that he gives to all Christians who endure trials and maintain their faith through all those trials. Not just the church at Smyrna, but to all Christians who endure those tests. 
Scripture is replete with examples of the fact that tests and trials and the afflictions of God's people have a threefold effect. A threefold effect. They serve to simplify us, to purify us, and multiply us. You see that. Exodus chapter 1, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, talks about the fact that the Jews, when the Egyptians began to afflict them, this is what it says. The Scripture says in Exodus 1.12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You notice that? Simplified, purified, and they multiplied. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Endurance. Ray Stedman lends some personal insight to this kind of thing, this principle. He says, I'll recall in the Great Depression when I was a high school boy that we didn't have much to eat. We had no luxuries. We could not afford to buy anything but the most basics. Even clothing came with great difficulty. But we had a wonderful time together, he says, without any special entertainment. We did not have television. We had radio. But where I lived, radios were battery-operated and used sparingly. Yet we had a wonderfully rich time. I look back on it as one of the richest periods of my life because we enjoyed each other. Simplified. We learned again the simple joys of relationship and of family fellowship. Someone has captured the thought of this in a poem I ran across recently. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gain while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. And he wept as he counted the hours on my knees. I never knew till one day by a grave how vain are the things that we spend life to save. And did not yet know till a friend from above, capital F, said, richest is he who is rich in God's love. History proves that the more the church is crushed, the more fragrant it becomes and the more it permeates the atmosphere around itself. The church, early church father, Tertullian, said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8 for a moment. See, this was perfectly proven true in the early church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, referring to Stephen, the first martyr, really. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. 
Therefore, those who had been scattered went about what? Preaching the word. Hmm. Look at 11, chapter 11 for a moment. Verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching what? The Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Wow, there's a principle for you. Simplify, purify, multiply. What did Jesus give for a commission to the church, to the disciples, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what did they do? They built a megachurch in Jerusalem, and nobody went anywhere. Stephen got martyred, persecution ripped out, in chapter 8, we find that they were scattered. Where? All those places that Jesus said they were supposed to go on their own. And they preached the gospel. And God added to their number large amounts of converts. Kind of gives you a little bit of a thought about how we build our churches in America, doesn't it? We supposed to be clumped together in large numbers or are we supposed to be scattering out, preaching the word? Here's an interesting fact about the church at Smyrna. About 50 years later from when John was writing here, the bishop of the church at Smyrna was a disciple of the apostle John by the name of Polycarp, who was burned at the stake for his faith in Christ. In fact, according to one source, he was burned to death on a Saturday in 155 AD, and the Jews who said they were Jews, but really they weren't. They were the synagogue of Satan, Jesus said, right? They broke the Sabbath to gather the wood to build the pyre to burn this saint at the stake. The account of his death is well documented, and I've shared it before, but let me just remind you of it. In a letter addressed by the church at Smyrna to the churches in the Christian world, it is related that the Jews joined with the pagans in clamoring that Polycarp should be cast to the lions or burned alive. The account follows, it was the time of the public games. The city was crowded and the crowds were excited. Suddenly a shout went up, away with the atheists. That's what they called Christians in those days because they worshipped other gods besides the Roman gods. Away with the atheists. Let Polycarp be searched for. No doubt Polycarp would have escaped, but already he had had a dream vision the night uh, previously in which he saw the pillow under his head burning with fire, and he had awakened to tell his disciples, I'm going to be burnt alive. So his whereabouts ended up being betrayed by a young slave girl who collapsed under the torture of the, of the people. And they came to arrest Polycarp. He was so well respected, not even the police captain who came to arrest him wanted to see Polycarp die. 
And on the brief journey to the city, he pled with the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and offer sacrifice and be saved? But Polycarp was adamant that for him, only Jesus Christ was Lord. And when he entered the arena, the proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. And this is what Polycarp said. Now, you may think Polycarp was this young, energetic saint of God when they came to arrest him and throw him into the fire, right? He was an 86-year-old man. He said, 80 in six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning, and Polycarp said this, you threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked in judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. What are you waiting for? Come and do what you will. So the crowds came. And they would have fastened him at the stake. This is what he said. He said, leave me as I am, for he who giveth me strength to sustain the fire will enable me also without your securing me with nails to remain without flinching in it. It's true what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Don't worry about what you're going to say when they bring you to these places. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. And he prayed... And the flame, it said, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, forming an appearance of an arch, as the sail of a vessel filled with wind surrounded as with a wall the body of the martyr which was in the midst, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refined in the furnace. And it closes like this. We received also in our nostrils such a fragrance as proceeds from frankincense or some other precious perfume. Not all churches will suffer as the church at Smyrna did. But the fact remains, folks, that today, even as we're speaking right now, there are a host of churches that are under the intense heel of persecution. Right now, they are being crushed, yet they continue to grow, and their aroma of Christ is detected across the globe. They are overcomers who thrive in the midst of suffering. You see a symbol behind me. That was a symbol, if you don't know, many of you probably already know, that uh, some time ago in northern Iraq, in Mosul, radical Muslims, ISIS, spray-painted the Arabic letter N on the homes and businesses of Christians. The property owners were publicly identified as Christ followers, and they were then given a choice to convert to Islam, leave, or die. The courageous believers refused to deny their faith, and more than 100,000, more than that, fled with little more than the clothes on their backs. Some were martyred, some were put to death. But the point is here, there are Christians today that are suffering just like the churches did that I'm talking about in Revelation chapter 2. And it's interesting here. I highly suggest, by the way, that you read a book by the author Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God. I've recommended it from this pulpit before, but 
it will blow your mind as to what the churches are experiencing in other countries. It's simplified, it's purified, and it multiplies. It's interesting that Jesus gives no word of rebuke to this church at Smyrna in this text, but only words of encouragement and promise. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days, but be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. It's as if he was saying, this is what I had in mind when I said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No one will be able to snuff you out. Interesting side note here in verse 10, probably wondering what the 10 days are of periods of testing that's promised here. It's predicted in this verse that they would suffer persecution for 10 days. Prophetically viewed, this church has often been said to be a picture of the period of history from about 160 A.D. to 320 A.D. That's until the rise of Constantine, the first so-called Christian emperor. The whole period has been termed the Age of the Martyrs. And during that period, Christians were persecuted almost beyond belief. And during that time, there were 10 separate edicts of persecution from Roman emperors historically that can be identified, beginning with the Emperor Domitian and continuing on to Diocletian, the last emperor before Constantine. So when viewed prophetically, the church at Smyrna portrays for us here a remarkable preview of the church age. Fast forward to modern day. Izmir, the third largest city in Turkey, is the modern day city of ancient Smyrna, by the way. And according to reports there, there are Christian believers in that region there today. All kinds of churches, Orthodox churches, Coptic churches, Catholic churches, evangelical churches, Unlike Ephesus, both the city and the church has survived even amidst intense Muslim persecution. Turkish believers across the country have lived under this constant threat of social and political persecution, yet the candle has not gone out. They still have their lampstand. Jesus promised that a church like this, an overcoming church, even though they may experience physical death, would not be touched by the second death. Look at that in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death you will find in Revelation chapters 20 and 21 refers to the lake of fire, the eternal death, which eventually will overtake all of Christ's and Christ's disciples' oppressors. Let me conclude by just reading a few excerpts from this book, The Insanity of God. In the concluding pages of his book, Nick Ripkin poses this provocative question. And it's the one that I pose here today because it's the one that 
it's the question that's begged here from this text to us. Why is there so much persecution directed toward followers of Jesus around the globe? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is there so much persecution directed toward followers of Jesus around the globe? Why are others persecuted for their faith and we are not? He then offers these convicting observations. Often, he says, when we consider those kinds of questions, we already think we know the answers. The answer might be, for example, the people who live in those places are uneducated. The people who inflict this kind of pain on believers are simply ignorant, and ignorance fuels persecution, so the answer is to educate them. Another answer might be better government is the answer. If these people would just embrace Western forms of democracy that would guarantee civil and human rights, then persecution would be against the law and it would stop. we got to bring in a better kind of government. What would we possibly offer them? <laughs> Another answer might be, if people were just more tolerant, we could live together in peace. Greater tolerance would end persecution. And he continues, he says, but none of these suggested answers even comes close to the foundational cause of persecution as it relates to the Christian faith. After almost 20 years of walking through this world of persecution and talking to hundreds of believers who suffer for their faith, we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the primary cause of religious persecution, perk your ears up now, the primary cause of religious persecution in the world today is people surrendering their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Why is it that millions of the global followers of Jesus who actively practice their faith in environments where persecution is the norm, the first and foremost basic answer is that these people have given their lives to Christ fully. And the second answer is that they have determined in their hearts that they will not keep Jesus to themselves. You hear what he's saying? Having found faith in Christ... They have such a passion for Jesus that they must share the good news of Christ, of His sacrificial love, of His forgiveness with their families, with their friends, with their neighbors. By doing that, these believers are literally choosing to be persecuted. We just read the verses. What that means is that for most believers, he says, is that persecution is completely avoidable. If someone simply leaves Jesus alone, doesn't seek him or follow him, then persecution simply will not happen. Beyond that, even if someone becomes a follower of Jesus, persecution will likely not happen if the faith is kept private and personal. If a person is silent about their faith in Jesus, the chance of being persecuted is very, very small. Believers... In persecution taught us another important truth, he says. The freedom to believe and witness has nothing at all to do with the government or political system. Nothing. 
Oh, I could say something right now, but I better hold my tongue. The freedom to believe and to witness has nothing to do with civil and political rights that might or might not be present. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Then it doesn't matter who gets in that Oval Office, does it? It isn't a matter of political freedom. It's simply a matter of obedience, he says. The price for obedience might be different in different places, but it is always possible to obey Christ's call to make disciples. Always. Every believer in every place is always free to make that choice at the beginning of every day you and I choose. And I stand here and I'm preaching this and I know I'm convicted in my own heart because I'm just like you guys are. I don't want persecution to come to my house. Do you? And so we alter our lives so it doesn't, don't we? And we alter our message so it doesn't, don't we? You see, the question is never, am I free to do this? Rather, the question is, will I be obedient to do this? Quite simply, we would do well to ask ourselves whether or not we are being obedient to Jesus, really. He's asking us. He's expecting us. He is commanding us to share him wherever we go. It is simply a matter of obedience. And perhaps, he says, as I close, the question should not be, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question is, why are we not? Jesus says, healthy churches overcome by remaining faithful in the midst of severe trials. Churches that suffer well will get the applause of heaven.